Let us now then go to Amos chapter 9. We're going to look at this chapter in its totality. And this will draw our study on, in the book of Amos to a conclusion uh, this evening. The title I want to give to the sermon is The End Has Come. The end has come. And the prophet Amos has been prophesying consistently through this book about the dire spiritual condition of the people of Israel. And finally, the end was just about to come. Maybe it might be helpful for us, for all of us, the minister also included, that we maybe just have a look and ask ourselves, how did Israel get to where we find them this evening in Amos chapter 9? How did Israel get to this point in the life of the nation? Well, we need to go back around 180 years before the time of Amos to the formation of the kingdom of Israel. And that happened around 930 BC. Solomon was the last ruler of the United Kingdom of Israel. But when he passed on, his son took over, Rehoboam, and Israel was divided. We don't need to go into the reasons, but it was divided. And Rehoboam was left to be the king of what was called Judah and Benjamin, the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, which collectively was called Judah. Jeroboam, very similar, but Jeroboam became the king of the ten tribes, the other ten tribes, collectively known as Israel. And they had their kingdom or their capital in Samaria, and they were situated in the north. Now, Jeroboam was an astute individual. He recognized that he had a certain amount of popularity, but he realized that his popularity alone would not hold on to the ten tribes and to the kingdom of Israel because he knew that they would want to go to worship. They would want, want to go to Jerusalem to where the temple was set up. And as they would go to the yearly festivals at the temple, they would be inclined to say to themselves, well, we should be together. We should be worshiping here. We remember the glory days of David and Solomon and it's time that we got back together. So Jeroboam, being an astute individual and wanting to hold on to power, he decided that he would set up a rival place of worship in Dan and Beersheba, where they set up groves and all kinds of false worship. And he basically said to the people under his kingship, you don't need to go to Jerusalem. You don't need to go there. I've set up places 
where we can worship the Lord together much easier for you. And that's what happened. And that was his great sin, the sin of Jeroboam. He set up rival places of worship where the people would go instead of going to Jerusalem. And one of the things that he set up was a feast. And it was held on the 15th day of the eighth month. And it was very like the one that was held in Judah. And the scriptures would tell us that he officiated at that feast, or at least had a prominent role in that feast. He was certainly much more than a private worshipper. He did contribute something to it. And therefore, he really wanted to dominate things. And he was one who, what we would say today, was promoting religion to further his political ends. He was harnessing the power of religion in order that his kingdom might be established. Well, as you may imagine, the worship in Israel degenerated. And this is what Amos is highlighting. Because although they began in their imaginations seeking to worship Jehovah, they were actually now beginning to indulge in idolatry and worship that was completely contrary to what God had set up. And in the time of Jeroboam, there was a man of God from Judah. We read it, it's a complicated story. He's not named this prophet, but he's a man of God from Judah. And he goes up and he finds Jeroboam at the altar. And he rebukes Jeroboam for the worship and for what's going on. And Jeroboam reprimands him. And as he does so, the king's arm is affected. It's obviously a judgment of God has fallen upon him. Well, we have something here very similar, some 200 years or so later on. We have here, in this chapter 9 here, we have another prophet from Judah going up, and he doesn't actually see the, the altar, he doesn't attend it physically, instead he gets a vision. And the Lord gives him a vision. And this is what we want to look at tonight. And there are four things that I wish to highlight from this chapter that we find in these verses. Four things that some of them will certainly surprise us. And we might imagine, we would be, maybe not imagine that God would say these things or do these things. But we find them in his word. And they are for our edification. And yes, friends, they are for our warning. Well, first of all, verse 1, what do we find here? Well, it tells us about the Lord 
He says, I will slay. I will slay. Here's the vision, the fifth and final vision. And he sees the Lord standing beside the altar. Now, we don't know where the altar was, and it's not really important. It may be part of the king's private worship or whatever. We don't know, but he was at an altar, and the Lord was there. I saw the Lord standing upon the altar, and he said, Smite the lintel of the door, that the post may shake, and cut them in the head, all of them. And I will slay the last of them with the sword. He that fleeth of them shall not flee away, and he that escapeth of them shall not be delivered. We might think, friends, this is a, something that a commander would say, or someone who's charge of an army, but this is the Lord God of heaven, and he is taking vengeance upon all them who are in this place of worship that does not meet his approval or standards. He is about to slay them. It actually reminds you, if you know the story of Samson, what did Samson do when he was in the temple? When his eyes were taken out and his strength had been restored to him, he stands between the pillars and he pulls the pillars together and he brings the temple down and he kills the Philistines, even more Philistines than he did when he was alive and well and up and running. There, on that occasion, he slew multitudes of the Philistines. Well, it's something similar here. God is bringing this altar and this temple to smithereens and all those that will be in it. And notice what he says here, I saw the Lord, L-O-R-D, capital L and lowercase letters. That is translated Adonai, Adonai. And that means the one who rules over all. Here is God in his great mighty power. It's not Lord with L-O-R-D, all in capitals, which is the name Jehovah, which is the great covenant name that's given to God. It's Adonai. Here is God moving and working in an awesome capacity upon all the people who claim to be the Lord's in worshiping him. And he's finding fault with it. You see, the altar was a place of sacrifice and atonement. But God refused to accept their worship. And he had enough and he said, I will slay. Now we might find that offensive. Certainly multitudes outside of the church would find this offensive. Why, isn't God a God of love? Well, of course he is. But he's a God who is holy. He's a God who is righteous. He's a God who will not tolerate sin. He is a God who will not tolerate first false worship from his people. And he will act accordingly. And that is what we find here. The Lord says, I will slay. He will slay his people who profess to worship him. Their religion was nothing but man-made. It met with the approval of man, carried out by unauthorized priests, and it was an abomination in the sight of the Lord. And as we might say in modern parliament, parlance, he has had enough of it.
Well, we might be quick to see, well, that's a warning to the church. That's a warning to the professing Christian church. And we have to acknowledge it is a warning to the professing Christian church. But friends, we cannot be looking over our shoulders. We cannot be looking at others. This is a warning to all of us. As we shall see as we go through this chapter, this is not for us to look at others, other congregations or other denominations where we see excess and where we see riot and where we see things that are not uh, consistent with the word of God. It's time to look at ourselves and do we worship the Lord in spirit and in truth? This is what we must ask ourselves because If God does not find our worship acceptable, he said to his people, I will slay them. Well, the second thing we want to notice here, <clears throat> he says, I will search. And we find this in verses two to four. And as we read these verses, we'll reread them. Notice friends, Notice one word that is repeated. What is it? It's the word though. It's the word though. Look at it. Read it. He says, though they dig into hell, thence will mine hand take them. Though they climb up to heaven, thence will I bring them down. And though they hide themselves in the top of Carmel, I will search and take them out thence. And though they be hid from my sight in the bottom of the sea, thence will I command the serpent, and he shall bite them. And though they go into captivity before the enemies, thence will I command the sword, and it shall slay them. And I will set mine eyes upon them for evil, and not for good. What is he saying? What does he want to convey? What is the God said to Amos that he must proclaim this message, this message that the land cannot take. It is that they cannot escape. It doesn't matter where they go. That's why we sang Psalm 139. We cannot escape the presence of God. We cannot get away from him. That's what he wants to impress here. Though they go down to Shoal, hell, into the place of the dead, I will find them. And though they climb up to heaven, I will get them. And though they hide themselves in the top of Carmel, the highest mountain, the most inaccessible place, I will get them. At the bottom of the sea, a serpent, some fish, they will get them. And though they go into captivity, their enemies will take them, yet I will search for them and I will get them. Friends, God is utterly determined that he is going to slay them, his own people. This is a terrible, terrible word that we have here. No wonder the, the world, the land, could not indeed bear the words of Amos the prophet because he was telling them not smooth things. Now, this has relevance to ourselves. We seek to preach the gospel. We live in New Testament times. 
The things that we read here we can apply, certainly. But we live in gospel times. We come here Wednesday night after Wednesday night. We're here on the Lord's Day. We're diligent. We seek to preach the gospel with all our gifts and graces that we have. Many people think they will escape. Many people don't give diligence to make their calling an election sure. They think they're all right. They think they have time. They think they can't procrastinate. They think they will escape. God will not do this. We're going to see this in the next heading. We're going to see this. God will not do this. And all the time he's telling them, I'm going to do this. I am. It's God himself. He will search. Now, of course, God doesn't need to search. God knows where they are. But surely what he's trying to convey to them and to us, that there is no escape. And today, friends, there is no escape unless we run to the city of refuge, unless we run to the Lord Jesus Christ himself and to make him our Lord and Savior. Well, thirdly, <clears throat> the chapter goes on, verses 5 to 10. I will destroy. <clears throat> I will destroy. What is he really telling us in these verses? Well, I put it to you in this verses. He's telling us, or Amos is seeking to convey to them the God with whom they have to do with. That is really what he wants to impress upon them. In the book of Amos, you can read it later on yourself to check, but nine times in this book, Amos calls God the Lord of hosts. Nine times in this short book, he identifies God as the Lord of hosts. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means the Lord of the armies of heaven and earth. The Lord is a man of war. This is what he wants to convey to these people. These people who have been despising the grace of God, the Lord of hosts. He's a commander of a vast army. The Lord of the armies of heaven and earth. That's the one with whom they have to deal with. And that is the one who is going to ultimately destroy them. And he reminds them about the greatness of, of their God. He's the God of creation. Surely this is what verses 5 and 6 is telling us. And the Lord God of hosts is he that touches the land and it shall melt and all that dwell therein shall mourn and it shall rise up holy like a flood and shall be drowned as by the flood of Egypt and so on. He is surely telling us here that this is the great God who spoke. The God who spoke and brought everything into being and that same God who speaks moment by moment, day by day, upholding this vast, glorious, complex universe. This is the God with whom they have to deal with. A God who can do things that are impossible for mankind to do. This is the God of the Bible. 
And this is the God that we are to fall before and acknowledge that he is our Lord and our God. But not only is he the God of creation, I think the most important thing he wants to draw out of this section here is, he's the God of history. And there's a real lesson here for all of us. Look at verse 7, for instance. Are ye not as children of the Ethiopians unto me, O children of Israel, saith the Lord, have not I brought up Israel out of the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Kaphtor, and the Syrians from Kerr? Now, these things might be difficult for us to grasp here, but I put it to you, friends, what is he saying there? Well, basically he is saying there, he's going to answer an argument that the people of Israel will present. If it's not audibly presented, it's in their minds. And they're going back to that great day of redemption. They're going back to that time when the Lord took his people, the Jews, out of Egypt with a great hand, with a mighty display of power. He brought his people out, and as a result, he broke the power of Egypt. A wonderful salvation and redemption was, was purchased on that day by the hand of the Lord. And the people are going back in their minds, and they're saying to Amos, didn't that not happen to the people of God? Didn't God do that for us? Do we not have a great pedigree? Do we not have an illustrious past? Didn't God do wonderful things for us away back in Egypt? Surely God would not destroy us. And God is basically saying to them, so what? So what that I took your ancestors out of Egypt? It was a great deliverance. That is true. But what about you today? Has that deliverance made any difference to you today? They were brought out of Egypt. And what happened? They were given the law of God. They were saved. And then they were given the law of God. And they were to live according to the law of God. And as far as Amos and God was concerned, at this time, they were not obeying the law of God. And he goes on, Have not I brought up Israel out of the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Kaphtor, and the Syrians from Ker? I took the Philistines from Kaphtor. We're not sure exactly where that is. It may well be Crete. It could be a part of Egypt. But what God is saying to them is, Yes, I took your ancestors out of Egypt, but I also took the Philistines out of Crete. So what? And the Syrians from Ker, where is Ker? We don't know exactly where it is. Doesn't really matter. But what God is saying is, I've dealt with these nations. And where are they? I've dealt with you. Where are you? That's what he wants to impress upon them. They were relying upon 
their heritage upon, upon what went before them. We're God's special people. God's not going to do these things. No. Friends, we can apply that to ourselves. God has done wonderful things in Scotland. Scotland has been blessed. Our whole society, whether we like it or not, regardless of what atheists will tell us, is built and founded upon Christianity. Yes, we know they're trying to eradicate the foundations of society, we know that, but it cannot be denied. Yet, are we living up to these blessings? We might say the professing Christian church is not, but we are not going to look at the professing Christian church, we're going to look at ourselves. Are we living up to the rich heritage that we have received? We could go to 1843. We could go to the year 1900. We could look at these notable historical occasions in the history of our church. But what about today? What about the here and now? Are we walking in the four steps of our fathers or not? We cannot go back to 1843 or 1900 or 2000. God would say to us, so what? What about 2024 today? Let no one misunderstand me when I say this. But if you're not living like a Christian today, you have no evidence that you are a Christian. Oh, you might be, yes, of course. Only God knows who are Christians. But if you have no evidence of spiritual life today, right here and now, then it may well be you're not a Christian. We could really make this very, very personal. They were looking to that great day when they were brought out of Egypt. So what, God says. Many people today as professing Christians, they have a testimony. They can tell what God did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And they rely upon a testimony. Now the testimony may be fine. But this word tells us today what is God doing in your life today? That's what matters. Are we walking with the Lord today? We repented when we first repented 20 years ago, 30 years ago. We had some kind of knowledge of sin and it drove us to the Savior. What about today? That knowledge of sin should be intensified. What we understood of sin decades ago should be truly enlightened today. That would cause us to run ever more closer and faster to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Basically, what he's saying here to them is, friends, what's happening today in your life? Don't look to some historical thing. Now, that may be good. Nothing wrong with it. But what is God doing in your life today? That's what matters. And he's reminding them that God is the one who is controlling all the nations. He controlled the Jews by taking them out of Egypt. He controlled the Philistines and the Syrians and every other nation. And the Apostle Paul says exactly the same when he was speaking, preaching the gospel to the people in Athens. He mentions this subject here. In Acts chapter 17, verse 26, Paul, in his presentation of the gospel, says this of God, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell in all the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. The Jews had a wonderful sense of the presence of God delivering them from Egypt. But God was instrumental in the life of every nation and that's what the Amos in his word wants to draw their attention to. They are accountable to the great governor of the whole earth and the governor has found them wanting and he will destroy them. And this word, it came true, as you would expect. It's the word of God. And it came true about 50 years after it was delivered. And the kingdom of Israel was no more. Taken over by the Assyrians in 722 BC. He will destroy. Now look at the end of verse 10, friends, or at least let, let us read verse 10. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword which say, the evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. Previously he said, at the end of verse 8, I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, saith the Lord. He will not utterly destroy them. There would be some who would be saved according to the election of grace. Now these, those who were going to be saved were not perfect. We're not saying that for one moment. They're not perfect. But this was going to determine the ones who would not be saved. And the ones who would not be saved are the ones who said, the evil shall not overtake me, nor overtake nor prevent us. In other words, we don't think this is for us. This is for someone else. This is for my neighbor. This evil shall not overtake me or prevent me. This is not for me. They were self-righteous. Fourthly, friends, and I want to end in a good note, a high note, and it's a wonderful note, because God says in verses 11 to 15, basically he sums it up like this, 
I will restore. I will restore. The kingdom of Israel came to an end, 722. They went into captivity, but that was not going to be the end. God was going to do a wonderful work. Here he's talking here about the days of the Messiah. The Messiah would come, the Lord Jesus Christ would come. In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David. Raise up the booth of David. It's a flimsy thing. It's not a notable thing. It's not a great thing. But he's going to come. The Messiah is going to come. And he's going to raise up the tabernacle of David. And the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to be inaugurated. And it's going to grow. And it's going to flourish. And it's going to extend to the, all the ends of the earth. And multitudes are going to be drawn into the church, into the kingdom of God. That's what he's talking about here. I will restore. He's not finished with the people of God. There will be restoration. These people there who first heard this prophecy, they would not be restored. But in many years afterwards, when the Lord Jesus Christ would come, the kingdom of David, that kingdom, which in David's time was an earthly kingdom and it pertained to Israel, will one day be a worldwide kingdom and it will per pertain to David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to have universal reign and glory. What do we find here in verse 12? That they may possess the remnant of Edom. Do you know, friends, that David was the only king that subdued Edom. All the other kings after him did not subdue Edom. Edom was their most intangible enemies who opposed the people of God continually. But in David's day, he physically controlled them and brought them into order and he subjected them to his rule. But ever since that, it never happened. But what's going to happen when Jesus Christ comes and his kingdom grows? Edom, which represents the greatest hostility of the world, shall one day be taken over. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and of all the heathen. This is where we are today. This is what is happening this ultimately, we'll see, will be the full manifestation of the kingdom of God. And we shall see its consummation, that glorious day, friends, when you shall look up. Behold, he cometh in the clouds, and every eye shall see him. And that day is coming. That's the great hope of the church. The Lord will restore. Is this not a great comfort to us? Is this not a great incentive to us? Is this not a great encouragement to us in these days of declension and decline that we might be faithful individuals and as a congregation and as a denomination that we would indeed be faithful in these days? Because, friends, if we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, we are part of this kingdom, part of this everlasting kingdom, the kingdom that the Lord is building and restoring today. It was the end then, portrayed, foretold, 
for the earthly kingdom of Israel. But the end, ultimately, will be glory. Glory for the Lord Jesus Christ and for his eternal kingdom. Amen. And may God bless his word to us. Let us.